Welcome to the Drive with Dave podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Miller at drivewithdave.com. I get to drive some of the fastest, coolest, sexiest cars on the planet. Ever since I bought my first Ferrari, I've been immersed in the global car community. Now I travel the world uncovering the hidden gems in luxury transportation and connecting with extraordinary car enthusiasts. Join me as I find the most exotic cars, meet the owners, and get the -the behind-the-scenes stories of the world's most exclusive rides. Unlike Tim Ferriss, I remember exactly how I met my next guest, or most certainly some of the drives we did together. It was coffee in Chicago. He needed insurance on a sports car, and we chatted about our shared passion for speedy machines. A bit of time after that, I was in my Lamborghini, he and his, and I'm leading a small convoy of cars on a Sunday drive. Up front, to keep speeds um, reasonable, we were going pretty fast. One car kept moving up in line until he was right behind me. Glancing back through the windshield, this guy was right on my tail, grinning from ear to ear, goading me to go faster. I should have known then that he would do big stuff in a car. Just at Le Mans alone, he's competed six times, finished six times, been on the podium four, and won once. Let's have him talk to you a little bit about that later on. Creator of Ruby on Rails in 2003, which, if you're a programmer or an app designer, Rails, as it's commonly known, makes your life a song. International race car driver, author, speaker, car collector, photographer. I'm proud to call him a friend. David Hanmar Hansen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for finally getting me on. Yeah, and thank you, David. I appreciate your time this morning. And I know you're pressed, but boy, there's a couple of questions uh, I am dying to have answers to. I know zip about coding, and most most folks listening into this podcast don't know either. But Ruby on Rails is the backbone of Twitter, Hulu, Airbnb, and thousands of others. And I'm kind of curious, is Ruby on Rails similar to Cars on Rails, David? Uh, I don't know about that. I think there are a lot of similarities about between driving cars, especially race cars, and, and programming, getting into the flow of the activity, forgetting the world around you, and just uh, getting completely absorbed in an activity. Um, but I think the the toolkit that I have is, is more like a, a sort of an approach to how you would build things. Um, the Ruby on Rails toolkit is, is kind of like all the plumbing that you need to create pretty much any kind of application. And people then take that plumbing and create sort of all these fantastical uh, applications. But um, my part of that is kind of like if you think about a house, um, yeah, you want sort of nicely insulated pipes that carry your water around and so on. Not really what you see on the outside, right? Like you can use those pipes to to build anything. I'm just proud and happy to have played a small part in helping a bunch of these applications and many others that um, to, to get to where they are. And not so much just what they've achieved, but for the programmer worked on those applications that uh, the programming language Ruby was designed to for programmer happiness, right? And I uh-huh. think that uh, uh, I try to follow in that tradition and design Ruby on Rails for programmer happiness and simply making it enjoyable to go to work if you are a programmer creating applications. And that's exactly what I've read. When I did some background information, it was fantastic to me to find out how you have had such accolades heaped on you for coming up with something that I guess makes it easy. And again, I'm not a programmer. I think most people that are going to listen here are not going to listen in for the programming stuff. But I want to mention something. I want to come back to uh, First Flow. But before we do that, let's talk about Le Mans. I understand you had always had your sights set on driving Le Mans. Is it or was it the experience you hoped for? I mean... It's funny because I didn't get my driver's license until I was 25. Actually, I got my driver's license about 
I think 18 months before I met you and uh -huh. bought that Lamborghini at the uh, Lamborghini of Chicago and needed a uh, insurance policy uh -huh. on a late Saturday. Um, so I, I really hadn't in sort of uh, physical car culture for, for a long time. Unlike lots of other people who go on to drive race cars, they've been driving go-karts or they've been driving something that burned gas for a long time. And I, I really just never had. Uh, I grew up in Copenhagen, Denmark, uh, with a set of roller skates that I used to get around the city. Uh, I never had a car. We as a family never, never had a car. Of course, I mean, we drove in cars, but we didn't own one. And it wasn't until I was 25 and I wanted to travel, and I wanted to travel particularly to the U.S., that I just realized that I needed to have a driver's license to get around. So I took that driver's license in, in order to travel. Uh, and then I happened to move to the, the U.S. about nine months later, and, uh, and, and another nine months after that, going well with the company. And as I said, I bought my first uh, sports car, uh, supercar um, in, in Chicago. And from there, it just sort of got going pretty quick. Um, after I got my, my license and I had moved to Chicago, I went to the track in Joliet, the Audubon Country Club. Sure. Two years later, um, a friend of mine let me drive his race car a single-seater called a Formula Mazda with a, a manual H-pattern dog-legged gearbox where you had clutch and flip and do everything yourself. And, of course, I was completely hooked after taking that around the track for, for a little while. So that was sort of, I think, uh, concrete. Um, my interest in Le Mans goes all the way back to the 90s when, when I was watching the show, sort of just at happenstance, turning on the TV uh, to the main public TV station in Denmark, and, and the race would be on. And I just remembered seeing um, those cars going down the Molsand Strait and thinking, wow, that's amazing. And then it got even more concrete in 1999 when a Dane, Tom Christensen, won the race uh, for his first time. There had been a Dane that had previously won the race, I think in 91 or something like that, um, Nelson. But Tom kicked off just a remarkable career at Le Mans in 99 and ended up winning the race over the next, what, 13 or 14 years, nine times. So that, I mean, he just became a national treasure, right? And even uh -huh. though I still didn't have my driver's license, he was just such an inspiration to see that role model that Denmark is a tiny, tiny country, right? Like what, five six, and a half, six million people yeah, there, yeah. that you could have someone like Tom Christensen come out of that and not just be a good competitor, but literally be the most winning racing driver at 24 hours of Le Mans ever, and probably forever, right? Don't it's they call him Mr. Don't, imagine that anyone is going to break the record. And don't yeah, they call Mr. him Le Mr. Le Mans? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. He's Mr. Le Mans, and he has his, uh, his hands prints in the city of Le Mans, I think, uh, nine times. So that was just uh, a revelation. And, and sort of once I got into racing, that was really what that like I want to follow in the footsteps, not necessarily competitively, but spiritually of uh, of Tom Christensen. Get to Le Mans and and see how we can go. And that uh, happened. And then a pretty short period of time, I start, I drove my first race car in 2007, and I was on the grid at the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 2012. And then the race in my class in 2014 with Aston Martin. And was the experience everything you had imagined it was going to be? Um, both yes and no. I mean, I think uh, when you're watching the race, 
um, it's very hard to imagine what it's going to be in the morning and being told you have to be in the race car for the next two and a half hours. Um, it is a intensely physical and demanding experience in a way that's hard to appreciate, I think, for uh, someone just watching the race. And I mean, I already had a pretty good understanding of what it was like to drive a race car. I'd driven many race cars, but I hadn't driven under those conditions for for that long. The 24 hours of Le Mans was my first 24 hour race. Um, and I drove it the first time in an LMP2 prototype. Uh, things go about three and a half towards four Gs in the turns. And once you've done that for um, eight hours out of 24 and you've been awake for damn near 32 hours or more, um, that is just an intensely physical experience that it's hard to prepare yourself for mentally. You can prepare yourself physically, and you certainly should, but um, being mentally prepared for being in the car and hitting your marks uh, in the eighth hour or in some godforsaken time in the middle of the morning uh, is is just uh, fantastic, right? Like it, it's such a challenge. It's it's so much harder than you think it would be. Yet it's also just uh, incredibly rewarding. Uh, the first time I drove it in 2012, I drove the stint when the the sun was coming up in the morning and just seeing the sun come up and the track gradually getting brighter and brighter. It was just absolutely magical. Uh, how did your skill as a programmer help you understand being a race car driver? I think there's actually a lot of similarities and they come down to the idea of systems thinking. And when you're designing uh, or you're programming an application, you're trying to think about how a whole lot of components work together in various feedback loops and how you can tweak and introspect and figure out how to make things go faster or work better. And a race car is much the same. It's kind of a closed loop. And that's one of the things I love about race car driving. You drive around a track and most tracks you'll do a lap in, in two minutes or less than that or a little more than that. Uh, Le Mans is a little special. That takes about four minutes. But most tracks, every two minutes, you get a verdict. Did we do better or did we do worse? Did the things I tried in the corners that uh, comprise this track, did that work or, or didn't it work? And I love that sense of feedback from a system. Uh, and the system is really, you have these four contact patches, these four pieces of rubber that are uh, touching the road. And there's all sorts of uh, physics to internalize and all sorts of tricks of the trade to memorize of how to make those tires work and how to lean on them in such a way that you don't spend them too quickly, but yet still extract the maximum amount of grip out of them um, as soon as possible. And that really requires an analytical approach, I think. There's certainly plenty of race car drivers who are never consciously analytical about it. They just get in the car and go fast, and they don't necessarily really know why they go fast. Um, that doesn't mean there isn't physics to it. It doesn't mean there aren't these tricks to it. It just means that they absorb those things in a perhaps unconscious way in some way. I have sought those things in a very conscious way. So one of my favorite innovations about race car driving in the past, let's say 10, 15 years, have been the rise of data. So now when you step into a modern race car, it logs uh, data out the wazoo. Everything is logged from your throttle position to your braking, to your steering, to the temperature of the brakes, to the temperature of the clutch, to the temperature of the tires, everything, right? And there's this data stream coming back to an engineering stand where in most professional series, you have a couple of people just sitting and watching that full time and making sure that everything is within operating conditions. And then after you've been out in the car, as a race car driver, you get to analyze all that. Not only do you get to analyze your own data, you get to compare it to 
other people's data. I always drive generally in endurance racing, which means I always have uh, co-drivers, and most of those co-drivers are professional drivers, which means that I just get this magical mirror to hold myself up against and see where I need Oh, I'm actually really good in turn one and turn 17 and 16, but I need to break, let's say, 17 meters later in turn five. I need to be a little smoother on on turning in turn three you just get to see all that data and then you can instantly incorporate it into your own driving style and you can see the time improve hmm. satisfying process of uh, of betterment and do you david you must work with your crew to both set up the car and then during the actual drive and especially a, a race like le mans or any endurance race whether it's daytona or something like that you're spending lots of time in the car but like you said you're also spending lots of time talking with the people and how's the how do you interact with the crew so you have a headset in the car uh, a radio that kicks back to the pit stands uh, and there's usually one chief engineer. Uh, most of the times I've been with teams, that's the person, but not always. I'm on a team right now where the um, team owner is on the radio, and then the engineer is sort of free to, to do his calculations on the side. But you kind of have that communication of, of where things going, where are you in the field, how far to the next car, how far to the, to the car behind you, and communicating back, like, what is the car doing? It's mainly uh, around two things. Is the car pushing? Is it understeer or is it loose? Is it oversteer? And those are the sort of two pillars of the setup you have to do. You have to do this dance of trying to get the car neutral or even to a slight push. I like a car that has just a hint of understeer such that if I cook it a little too hard into a corner, um, the car's not going to snap on me. So you're trying during the week of a race to get to that. And that's what the setup dance is about. You'll go out in a practice session, drive around as fast as you can and see what the car does. And then you'll come back and it's, oh no, in the high speed corners, the car is a little loose. And the engineer will say, oh, let's add in half a degree of rear wing and see if that helps. Or um, the car is, uh, is pushing in the low speed corner uh, maybe we should stiffen up the car. We can either put in a, a stronger uh, sway bar or we can uh, go up on the springs. So that's kind of that communication you have throughout the weekend to kind of find the, the perfect setup. And you're constantly chasing uh, multiple factors, and that's what makes it so fascinating. It's not just that you can come up with a perfect setup. There is no perfect setup. There's only a setup that works well for the temperature, for the day, for the grip, for the other cars that had been out prior to your race and had laid down a different kind of rubber. So there's always this... Um, approximation where you're trying to find what will be the best setup for these specific conditions hmm. um, because a lot of race cars are actually surprisingly uh, sensitive um, a bunch of race cars i've driven can go from being wonderful wonderful cars to drive to being completely uh, impossible to drive from one millimeter of ride height that's hmm. all it takes hmm. that's all it takes between something that's wonderful and something that's horrible mm -hmm. and i think it's just if you hear those and you try to meter it out with your fingers, you can hardly put your, your two fingers apart, and then you have a millimeter, right? Uh -huh. like that's really the difference between uh, a well-functioning race car and one that's just all over the place. It's just fascinating that we're operating within such uh, tight parameters. Tight, tight, uh, yeah, parameters. Hey, David, I, I heard you mention before flow and competition. What is it, and um, how do I get it? Yeah, so flow is this um, principle of, learning that uh, I believe he was a Czech um, uh, psychologist came up with and had studied for many years around how professionals 
um, get to find enjoyment in their profession. And the idea of flow is to get so engrossed in an activity that's just beyond the reach of your current abilities that you lose all sense of time and place. And that was probably what initially hooked me into race car driving so thoroughly that in programming, I spend a lot of time trying to find this flow where, where everything else just disappears. And I'm engrossed in my work to a point where I can make tremendous progress and then look up and think like, how long has it been? Has it been an hour? Has it been two hours? I don't really know. Um, and in a race car, I found that if, especially when I was learning it in, in the beginning, I could just step in, close the door, turn on the car, and instantly I'd be in the full state. And that was because there was simply so much information coming at me that there was no time to think about anything else. When you're in a race car and you're coming up to a corner going 150 mile an hour, you really have literally split seconds, as in tenths of seconds, to make the right decision about when to turn in, when to break, and so forth. So there isn't time to think about like, oh, what should we have for dinner tonight? Or um, what do I have coming up for work tomorrow? Or any of these other considerations that can take your mind off the moment. You're simply forced to focus all of your attention on the moment, which is a wonderful place to be. It's, it's um, just so engrossing to, to be in that position. You really get out of the car and you have no idea how long it's been. Oh, I've been in the car for two hours. I'd have races where it felt like I was in the car for five minutes. Other races where I only had to do 25 minutes and it felt like two hours. It, just, it distorts your sense of time because uh, your attention is just so focused on, um, on processing what's coming at you. And you're constantly striving to get just one step further, one step better. And in the race car, a lot of it is literally tenths of a second, right? The difference between... Uh, a professional race car driver that's winning everything and a good amateur who is not winning anything on their own is, is often just half a second, five, ten over the course of a lap. It takes two minutes. There's very, very little in it, right? And you're trying to find that tenth or even half of a tenth in individual corners by pushing things maybe five meters forward, maybe seven meters forward, being a little looser in the break. And um, that optimization process, that level of system thinking uh, lends itself incredibly well to this state of flow. Let me segue into something else, and that's you. Um, work hard, play hard, best describes what I see of your life, and you're a, you're a huge proponent of shutting yourself off from the world for large blocks of time. But as a spouse, a parent, a race car driver, one of the top programmers in the world, how do you manage to shut everything off and get creative in your work world? Sure. I'd actually take a little bit of um, sort of pushback to the hard. I don't think I do either of those things. And I have a tendency to associate that term with people who work on Wall Street uh, 14 hours a day and then go out and binge drink or, or snort cocaine for another five hours. Uh, my life is nothing like that. Um, <laughs> my life in, in is perhaps in many ways the complete opposite of that. Um, for me to perform and do the things that I want to do requires taking very good care of the system that uh, that I have that's made of flesh and bones. And that includes things like getting proper sleep. I try to sleep eight and a half or even nine hours every night. Um, I go to bed most days by 10 o'clock and, and get up uh, around seven or so. So I'm not trying to push or squeeze more hours out of the day than, than I can 
get quality hours out of, right? I've tried earlier um, when I was sort of younger and first getting into whatever, doing all-nighters or any of these other cliches, and it just never worked, right? Like you would get a few more hours out of that particular day, and then you would absolutely ruin all the hours in the following day. And if you add all that up, it doesn't add up. So taking good care of sort of the system that I have, getting enough sleep, um, getting proper exercise, uh, eating healthy. Uh, those are just some of the basics. And then protecting the time that I have, saying no to almost everything, right? Like the reason we're on this call right now is that I can do it from my home office. So all I had to do was uh, put on my headphones and, and we can talk about cars and racing and flow for 30 minutes. I mean, that's a good time and it doesn't disrupt my day. And I try to arrange uh, a lot of things that I do around stuff like that, saying no to almost everything. I need people for coffee speaking. I don't uh, just take perspective calls. I don't do a lot of things that um, perhaps the stereotype of a executive or, or a networker would have you believe. I try to protect as many hours as I possibly can so that I can uh, commonly get these long stretches of three, four, five hours of uninterrupted time where I can make true progress on the things that I want to, to achieve, right? And then I turn off my computer at five o'clock and then I spend time with the kids all night and we go swimming or we go hiking or we play video games or we read or, or whatever else have you. I try to work within eight hours every day um, and then reserve the rest of the time to allow my brain to recoup and to also live life. Right? That's the interesting part that I have read. And of course, I've known you now for over 10 years and you and your business partner, Jason Fried, have spent a lot of time I think practicing what you just preached, uh, growing Basecamp linearly, sharing your successes in books like Rework and Remote, which I've read a number of times. And now is it three books? Four, is this your fourth book coming out this fall? Yep, we got a fourth book coming out in actually just uh, uh, just over a month, October 2nd. Uh, it's called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, which is exactly what we were just talking about, right? Setting yourself up in such a way that you can do wonderful, uh, dedicated, um, impactful work without breaking your own psyche, without breaking your body, without sacrificing your life to do it and to be able to do it for the long term. Jason and I have worked together for about 18 years now. Uh, the Base Camp was founded in 1999. And how we've been able to keep going has been because we never we never sprinted a marathon. I need a marathon is not even a good because uh, American a marathon is actually pretty pretty damn tough. It and, is, and you'll get pretty exhausted. This is more of a stroll, uh, I'd say one you can just keep on going with for a very long time. So we've been at it for for almost two decades, and there's no sort of there's no exit event in sight as people in technology often um, try to look forward. Right? Oh, I'm going to work myself to, so that I can retire at 35 and then, then do what exactly for the next 60 years of your life, right? Um, a lot of people I, uh, and I've talked to end up, end up very disillusioned with the idea of early retirement. And as much as I love cars and as much as I love racing, I would not want to do either things full time. I actual simulation through work and through programming and so forth. So I try to set a comfortable, sustainable pace where we can do things we want to do on 40 hours a week. And what we found is that that's more than plenty, that the size of company that we have, we're about 50 
people, and that's a high watermark for a long time. We were 20 or 30 people. We've been able to accomplish far more than companies 10 times our size or even 100 times size in terms of productivity. We've written four books. We've released the Ruby on Rails uh, open source framework. We've been sharing. I speak at conferences. We do all sorts of things and we put out location base camp that helps people make progress on their projects and in their company and deal with growth um, to the tune of more than 100,000 paying customers. And we can do all these things and still go to bed at 10. Still enjoy our race cars, still have family, still write books, still do all these things because uh, most people drastically overestimate how much productivity they're actually getting out of the hours that they put in, right? When, when entrepreneurs in the tech industry are bragging about, oh, I work um, 12 hours a day or 100 hours a week or whatever, most of those hours are squandered. They are not productive hours. They're wasted in meetings or things that don't matter. And what we've said is, like, rather than try to increase the number of hours, let's just squeeze out of them such that the hours that are left are quality, solid hours where you can make a true impact. Um, and that has proven over the past couple of decades to, to work exceedingly well. And it's just a, it's just a happier day. I mean, both Jason and I are now at the point in our career so that we don't have to do the things that we do. If we wanted to retire tomorrow, things would be just as well. And I would still uh, buy a Lamborghini when I, I saw fit and everything would be just fine. Uh, we're doing these things because we want to. And getting to that point uh, requires sort of taking stock of your entire life and thinking like, what do I actually want out of this thing? How do I get to the good life? And the good life is a combination of multiple factors over the long for Jason and I, and uh, that's where we are. Everyone is seeking the same thing, and that's just being happy in life. What do you think makes for a good life, not necessarily your life, but a good life? That is a question that I've been uh, chasing an answer to for, for a long time, and I've gotten more serious about that endeavor over the past, let's say, 10 years. And one of the uh, sources of wisdom that I've found um, has been the study and the lectures of the Stoics, uh, a branch of uh, Greek and Roman philosophers from uh, about uh, 2,500 years ago, who wrote about their trials and tribulations in Rome and in uh, and, and that era, and was uncannily spot on about all the difficulties that humans face in life, whether they live in ancient uh, Rome or whether they live in the 21st century. And a lot of the techniques that they uh, present and um, teach are things that you can use just as well today, whether you're running a company like uh, I am now, or whether you were working for someone else as I were earlier. And a lot of it has to do with setting expectations, that much of the disappointment in life comes from setting unrealistic expectations and then getting disappointed with those inevitably do not pan out. Um, one of the techniques I particularly endure from the Stoics is this uh, notion of negative visualization. Rather than constantly going around hoping for everything to be wonderful and then being so utterly devastated and disappointing when it, ne it inevitably is not. Um, you go around basically thinking, what are all the worst things that could happen to me? What would happen tomorrow if Basecamp, the company that I run, imploded? What would happen if I was in an accident in a race car and 
was unable to race, what would happen uh, under all sorts of uh, calamitous events. And then you think those things through and you, you get a sense of peace with it. So, for example, with the business and my professional career, if Basecamp was to have some calamity tomorrow where the whole company imploded, uh, I don't know, we got hacked by aliens and they stole everything, <laughs> um, then what, what would I be left with? Well, I would have been left with 18 wonderful years of working together with some of the kindest, uh, most competent people that I've ever met in my life. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I would have been left with um, a skill set that I've developed over the two days that I could then go and pursue in another service. Um, I've been left with sort of all the wealth and fortune that we've been so fortunate to have through the development of this company. There are all sorts of good things. I would not have to sort of cry endlessly over the fact that something would end, right? And I think visualizing all these negative events, visualizing all the things that could go wrong allows you to build up a mental fortitude and prepare yourself for all the things that are inevitably going to happen, all the negative visualization that I've done, it is inevitable that some of them will come to pass, whether they come to pass now or they come to pass in the future. I get to live a calmer life by being ready for those things. So um, there's a wonderful introduction to Stoics that's called A Guide to the Good Life that gives a, a great overview in a very practical manner that anyone can read and uh, and take something away from that I would very highly recommend. I have read all of your books. It has led me to live in both Chicago and Los Angeles, as you know, um, and to successfully run my business just by reading uh, remote. It's been a great inspiration to me. And I want to say just a couple of things. First, it doesn't have to be crazy at work, available on uh, at Amazon. I think it's October the 2nd, if my notes are correct. And secondly, I want to say something else, David, before I ask you my final question, but I am always talking to, rubbing elbows with uber successful people like yourself. And David, I know you've worked very hard to make yourself who you are today, but you are also right now one of the happiest, most down-to-earth guys I know, and emulating your style is something I'm going to take away from knowing you and our interview this morning. My other question is, before we go, you've got a car collection I would kill for. I would, if you leave the, the, the gates open at your house, I'm going to come up and steal something. What, what should I steal? What's your, what's your favorite car in your collection? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I've been fortunate to have a lot of wonderful street cars over the years. And one of the things I've learned is that the best car uh, is kind of like the best setup. It's tuned for the situation. So I think perhaps my favorite car for just going driving on a wonderful smooth open road when the weather is good is the Pagani Sonda that I own and keep in uh, in Spain uh, perhaps a close second to uh, actually I wouldn't say that uh, on, on those terms just the open sky listening to the exhaust um, plowing up a road and enjoying that experience the Pagani Sonda is the best I would say the best car for really scaring the bejesus out of yourself or your passenger is the uh, Koenigsegg Agera with, uh, with some 1,200 horsepower and, uh, and 1,380 kilos. Uh, some of the most riveting drives I've ever had has been in, in that car. But then there are other tasks. Uh, those, both of those cars would be absolutely horrendous for me to take to the airport. Uh, on a uh, busy Wednesday to, to go out on a flight out of LAX. They would be a hassle in traffic. They would be loud and uncomfortable. I would worry about where to park them. So in that, for that use case, they would be horrendous cars. And for, for much of that, um, one of my favorite cars 
versus the Mercedes S-Class uh, Coupe. That that car just does everything uh, a luxury insulated car that makes no fuss and no drama and draws no attention, uh, and therefore is, is the perfect car to to go to um, to the airport in. Then for doing school runs and driving my kids to uh, to preschool or whatever. Uh, an 911 turbo that fits two car seats in the back and that has been a wonderful fun car for them and for both me and my wife to uh to drive into school in so it's all about the purpose and it's all about uh what are you using the car for but yeah i mean in the classical sense of just that one car where you go for a drive and you want to enjoy that the Honda is um is very hard to beat I just want to mention that uh, my wife and I are headed over in Spain uh, very shortly. And um, again, if the gates are opened over there, I'm, uh, I'm headed in that direction as well, David. I want to thank you very much for coming on today. You've given me some great thoughts. I'm not a, I'm not a race car driver. I certainly don't pretend to be. My friends uh, have anointed me with the nickname Spin Boy, which should tell you you're going to beat me every time at the track. But I have learned a great deal about who, who, who David Hanemeyer Hansen is. I appreciate your time again, David. And um, I'm definitely going to get up to Malibu. Let's see if we can do uh, some some lunch or uh, drink before you go back uh, for the winter. Absolutely. My pleasure. And David, if people want to reach you, your fans just want to reach out to you. Is there an email address? How should they reach you? I'm on Twitter at DHH. It's a pretty high volume feed about uh, all sorts of stuff and plenty of politics. So um, be forewarned. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> David at basecamp.com is, uh, is a good email address to uh, reach me as well. David, again, I want to thank you for your time. I'll give you a buzz soon or a nudge. We'll see if we can get together. Uh, I would love to catch up in person. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for your time, David. Thanks for joining us on the Drive with Dave podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear and see more about exotic sports cars, you can connect with us at drivewithdave.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Also, catch us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks again.